Lord, thank you for bringing us together on this Lord's Day, and, and we're grateful that you have already in your kindness um, spoken to us through the Word and through the administration of the sacraments. We're grateful. And Lord, I pray that you'll bless us in this time together, um, renew our hearts and our minds around the truth of who you are and your triune self and the good news that is for us, Lord, as your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, today I'd like to spend some time on the Trinity and the Pentateuch and see where we get together. Um, and I'll go ahead and, and sort of paint a picture for where we're going um, to try to frame the discussion around God's presentation of Himself as Creator in Genesis chapter 1 and then God's revelation of Himself in Exodus as the Redeemer. All right. Now, of course... Even the way in which I'm framing that is a little brittle, uh, because uh, you know God presents Himself as Creator and Redeemer in Genesis as well, and He presents Himself as Creator and Redeemer in, in Exodus too. Um, but I think these are sort of helpful terms uh, to think through God's understanding and His identity as Creator and Redeemer, and this is important, I think, uh, because and, and this is tapping into a particular kind of scholarly. Discussion, so I don't want to, I don't want to lose you here, um, for lack of interest, but a particular scholarly discussion about how the Bible is ordered and about how we come to talk about God in light of the ordering of the Bible. Uh, so, you know, all of us know that uh, the Bible begins with the book Genesis. Uh, in the Hebrew text, it's referred to as Bereshit, in the beginning. Um, and this is the way in which all of our Bibles, so you think about the Hebrew tradition, the Greek translation tradition, the Latin translation tradition, all of our English Bibles, every Bible begins with a book like Genesis. Um, there was an Old Testament introduction that was uh, written, I guess, maybe in the 70s by Bernard Anderson called Understanding the Old Testament. Um, it was the probably the best seller. I mean, the, the fellow had to have made a mint. I mean, he bought, bought a house uh, on this book um, because every seminary, especially mainline seminary in the country, um, read Bernard Anderson's Understanding the Old Testament. It was the introductory textbook probably for undergrads and seminary students all around the country. Um, Brevard Childs, who is a particular figure that's had a shaping influence on me, my own thought, um, someone apparently asked Childs, he taught at Yale, and Bernard Anderson taught at Princeton. And of course, you realize these things get a little bit uh, tricky. Um, but, uh, you know, he, someone asked Brevard Childs in a class, uh, tell us what you think about Bernard Anderson's understanding the Old Testament. And Childs' response, which I think was brilliant on multiple levels, was, uh, well, that book's even better than the Bible. And then kind of went on and left it there. And the students were like, well, that's a kind of a strange statement to make about Bernard Anderson's book. But what did he mean by that? Well, Anderson structured his introduction to the Old Testament around a particular understanding of Israel's history and Israel's religious history. So that chapter 1, uh, getting out of the gate, is talking about the Exodus event the, and the Sinai narratives that you have in a book like Exodus because those were the defining events of Israel's history. So from a historical standpoint, we get that that's true, right? I mean, what happened 
at Exodus, what happened in Egypt in the 14th, 13th, 12th, wherever it happened, right? There's a lot of debates on this. No, but whenever that happened, that was the defining moment where God took this sort of fledgling group of people who had a rather undeveloped, inchoate religious background, and now they're in Egypt, and God sends this redeeming figure to them to bring them out in mass into the Sinai Desert, into the land of Canaan, to form this particular league of tribes um, that then eventually turns into the nation of Israel. It's a standard kind of depiction about the history of Israel's religious history and, and their national history. And Bernard Anderson moves that to the beginning because he allows history to become the primary medium or the primary means by which he constructs this Old Testament introduction. So when Child said in his kind of laconic and snarky way, and it was snarky, that Anderson's book was better than the Bible itself, what he meant was Anderson has fiddled with the biblical material in such a way that the way in which he's ordering it doesn't resemble on the surface the way in which the Bible comes to us. Another uh, another theologian, Old Testament scholar, who I have an enormous amount of time for, um, is a fellow by the name of Gerhard von Rad. Um, matter of fact, I was in Heidelberg this summer with our Germany group. And, uh, you know, we went to Heidelberg and we saw a little placard where Martin Luther apparently gave a disputation to the Augustinian monastery there. Um, but I, when I, whenever I go to Heidelberg, my heart kind of gets warm and fuzzy, really, because of Gerhard von Rad. He's a very important uh, theologian and Old Testament scholar. Um, he uh, was teaching at the University of Jena during the Nazi regime. Um, that was the, the sort of center of Nazi higher education was the University of Jena. And von Rod kind of single-handedly, I mean, this is, it almost sounds uh, um, hagiographical, but it's, but it's true. Um, he stood against the, st- the rising tide of National Socialism and its particular understanding of the Old Testament and would show up and lecture to one or two students. Because, you know, the, the, the National Socialism was not real big on the Old Testament. They wanted to get rid of anything that sounded too Jewish. And I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but it's rather Jewish. Uh, um, so that get, get rid of that. Uh, and so here's, here's Von Rod lecturing to a class of nobody, in effect, but continuing to teach the Old Testament in light of the massive cultural shift against his particular discipline. I have a lot of time for Von Rod. But Von Rod himself talked about Israel's understanding of creation and redemption. And he furthered the notion that, frankly, a decade ago, I would have taught my students. Right? So I'm, we're always sort of moving on these things. But I've changed my mind on this. He would have taught that ancient, ancient Israel, or Israel, historically speaking, religious historically speaking, never had an independent doctrine of creation. In fact, the doctrine of creation was subservient to the doctrine of redemption. It served redemption so that creation becomes instrumentalized. Creation is an instrument. It becomes, um, it loses its integrity as an independent doctrine because its sole purpose is to provide the platform for God's redemptive activities. Now, this is a a really big theological debate that's going on even right now. Uh, People debate this. Um, And I don't want to sort of get lost in it, but the point I think is very crucial because Again, back to Childs' statement about Anderson's book being better than the Bible. The Bible begins with Genesis 1. It comes to us that way. 
The Bible's making a claim. I mean, even if Van Rod and Anderson are right from a religious historical perspective, even if it can be claimed that someone like Moses might not have had an independent doctrine of creation, I don't even know what that means, by the way, but, but that doesn't have that. Even if that could be claimed from a facts-on-the-ground kind of thing, that's not the way the Bible and those who shape the Bible in the form in which we have it, that's not the way they have presented it. Out of the gate in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1, a claim about God's identity as Creator. And it gives creation its own independent status, or, or maybe independence is not the right word, because I don't mean that in the sense of siphoned off or dislocated from the context of redemption. What I mean is it allows a doctrine of creation to retain its own integrity. It has an integrity as a doctrine. And now, so here's kind of the fun question. Does creation serve redemption, or does redemption serve creation? Now, you know, my naughty side would want to say the answer to that is yes, right? because both of those are going on. But it is something, isn't it? And I think evangelical-type people, you know, you all, who really like the Bible and believe that Jesus changes our lives, those kind of people, are starting to um, clue into the fact that creation um, is important and that the created world is important and that thinking about the world around us, the rocks and the trees and the environment, and the, that these things actually matter, not because of some sort of intense sort of political instinct, maybe that's the case, I don't know, but because you realize that the Bible itself talks about creation this way, and it just happens to seem like the goal of creation's existence is a new creation on the far side of the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3 that had its massive impact on what? On the whole of the universe. So I don't know if we think about this um, in ways, or maybe we, you do, and we'll just continue to think about it more. But think about the significance of the fact that you have in Romans chapter 8, and Colossians chapter 1, this notion that the entirety of the universe, the created order, um, the, the, the rivers and the oceans and the mountains, the winds, um, the, the galaxies, I mean, I, I mean, as far as our minds can go, that all of that, that God spoke into existence, is yearning for the consummation of God's kingdom so that they too can be right again. Creation is groaning for the cosmic redemption of Jesus Christ to make good on what He has already laid claim on in His person and work, the death and resurrection. And now the creation itself with bated breath waits for what? For the the consummation of the kingdom so that it too can be made right again. So this whole notion about a new creation um, a new heavens and, and a new earth. Uh, the fact that the created order itself waits to be made right again. And the reverse of that, or the flip side of that, is what? The equal claim that sin had an impact not just on us in our entirety, but sin had an impact on the world in its entirety. Uh, just watch Shark Week, right? <laughs> or some National Geographic channel. Um, and then start listening to the ways in which the prophets talk about the future kingdom where lions and lambs are lying down with one another. Something's not right. 
um, about that particular thing when a lion rips the throat out of a gazelle. Something's off on this, right? So the whole creation is yearning for this. So I, uh, just to kind of toss that out to you as a thought, maybe to think through. Um, well, I wasn't going to talk about it. I'm going to press a little bit more. I don't know what your hope for, what will you hope for as far as the end game of your redemption? <laughs> I mean, this is a big deal, because right? this is why we're Christians, right? Um, for me, growing up in the world that I grew up in, which again, I'm very grateful for this world, but for me, the end game was exiting my body, this thing that sort of weighed me down, so that I could then be freed from the material confines of this world and be present with Jesus. You know, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, that's something that we claim. I don't, I don't affirm an intermittent. So I believe that when people die, their souls are with Jesus in, in, in that communion of the divine. That, that's a profound and comforting pastoral thought. But I think for me, growing up, that was it. I mean, that, 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 that's the end game. And this notion about the way that the Bible begins in Genesis 1 and the way that it ends in the book of Revelation where we have this emphasis on creation and new creation, that's not the end game. In fact, we're leaning heavily against this disembodied understanding of what it means to be human. In fact, we are meant to be souls and bodies together. That's why when we say this morning in the Nicene Creed or in the Apostles' Creed next week in morning prayer, when we say, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, this is a, this is a material claim about the core of our Christian faith. We believe that, number one, bodies matter. And we believe, number two, that the material existence of this world matters. And that the new creation is the, the reconstitution and the recapitulation of the material world as it's meant to be. I don't. Maybe that's bad news for you. I don't know, but for me, that's great. It's about fly fishing and and uh, and football on the lawn and dogs and children and I mean, this is this is the stuff of what heaven is ultimately about. And this period when we're absent of our bodies, our souls are absent from our bodies, waiting for the resurrection of the dead. It's not how it's supposed to be. Our souls are meant to be with our bodies. And that's why it seems to me like when you get into the prophets, what you begin to see are these idyllic portraits of the future that sound really pedestrian. Almost like, give me something more than that. I mean, what's the picture in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4? Well, there's no more war. Your, 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 your um, spears and your swords are now uh, plowshares and pruning hooks. And everyone sits in peace in their home drinking their own wine. Okay, uh, and and then what's the picture in in um, in Zechariah? For one of my, I mean, sorry, Zephaniah, one of my favorites, right? Old men sitting on benches, hearing children running around and playing. It's a presentation of the of what's hoped for in the future. Um, th- this is what we hope for: our world, our relationships, our relationships to each other, our relationships to the created order, the enjoyment of this world. All of it being brought back to wholeness, to being brought back to here's your Hebrew word for the day: to shalom, to peace, to flourishing. Why? Because the knowledge of God will be like the waters that cover um, the sea. So that all, that big that was a rant. Yeah, it was a rant. Sorry, um, but this big rant. 
It was a rant because of the importance of the canonical location of Genesis chapter 1. The matters that God is a creator and that God spoke this world into existence and that this world is not merely instrumental to then get us out of this world. But this world is, has its own integrity and purpose in God's redemptive economy and that includes the atoning work of Jesus. I mean, think of that. The atoning work of Jesus, the blood spilt on the cross for you and for me has the impact of making the whole world right again. And that's that's the kind of view I think you want to have of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, back to Genesis. What you see in Genesis 1, we'll just do these first few verses and then we'll press on. What's our time? Oh, we got plenty of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, those of you who've done any study in Genesis, you know... And the amount of literature that's been written on the space between verse 1 and verse 2 is a lot. All right? A lot of ink's been spilled. Um, I think there is a pretty big gap there, but I won't go to the guillotine over it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Here's your fun Hebrew terms. The earth was uh, tohu wabohu. Isn't that fun? I mean, it's meant to be fun in Hebrew too, I think. Um, Robert Alter, who translated the five books of Moses, um, I don't know if you have this, it's probably worth having on your shelf. They're very good translations. He tried to allow some of the assonance and the, and the figures of speech that you have in the Hebrew text show up in the English translation. So this is how he translates it. Weltering and wasting. That's actually a pretty good job there. That's hard to do. Um, tohu, wabohu, weltering and wasting. So this we have the material world, the, the tohom, what we might call the primordial chaos. Everything's out of control. It's formless. It's void. It's vapid. It's nothingness. It's weltering. It's wasting. Then God ascends His Spirit. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this is worth talking about because this ruach, this spirit, is an agent that is sent by God to perform the work of God. So already, even here in Genesis chapter 1, now, of course, I'm loaded with the kind of Trinitarian view of the world that's shaping my reading here. I don't want to deny that or even try to make make that um, less than what it really is. But this claim that God sends His Spirit that His Spirit has an operative work in the, in, the, in the role of creation, or an operative role in the work of creation, as something distinct from the sending agent, and yet overlapping in identity with the sending agent. That's the, that's the dynamic that you're beginning to feel that a book like Genesis and really the whole of the Old Testament is pressuring on you to think about the Ruach, the Spirit of God is sent, there's a, there's a sending agent, and yet the agent itself seems to overlap in identity with the one who sent it. That's what you're beginning to get. And what do you have here? The Spirit of God is doing what? Preparing for the Word of God to do its work. Now that's worth reflecting on in and of itself because that gives us a particular kind of biblical pattern that's very New Testament in shape as well. The Spirit of God goes forth to prepare the ground for the Word of God to do its work in the world and in the lives of humanity. 
Um, you know, this was a, a sort of a big discussion among Reformed and Presbyterian and Anglican type people during the, during the season of the Great Awakening in the 18th century. Um, who do we preach the gospel to? Well, this, this was a kind of a hot topic. Do we preach the gospel only to those in the church, or how do you preach the gospel? And and what what was the claim that I think we all affirm? The claim is the gospel call goes out universally to all, indiscriminately. It's never the work of the preacher or the teacher to decide who gets to hear the gospel or not. The gospel goes out to all, recognizing what? That the Spirit of God is doing His work to prepare for the Word of God to implant itself in those to whom God so chooses to do that kind of work. Um, so the Spirit of God goes forth and prepares, and then the Word, the word of God comes, and this is verse 3. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. What do you see here with this claim in verse 3? The omnipotence of the Word of God to do His work. And God said, that's the claim about the Word of God, and that let there be light. That's the speaking word. That's the locution that comes out. And then what's the effect of that word that comes out from God? The word is omnipotent. It's effective. It's effectual to do that which it sets out to do. And don't you love that pattern? God said, let there be light. Next phrase. And there was light. Right? That's the pattern in, in Genesis 1 uh, and, and the six days of creation. And God said, separated the day from the night. Next verse, and it was separated. That's the kind of move that you have. So you have the omnipotence of the Word of God to do the work of God that's set out before Him to do. It's powerful and effectual to do that. And when we turn to the New Testament witness to read this in conjunction with what we see in Genesis chapter 1, what do we begin to see? John chapter 1, verse 1. Someone, I think you brought this up last week. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's a claim in John chapter 1, verse 1. And that's intentional Genesis 1 chapter language. In other words, the Gospel to John is making, of John is making a claim. When you've read Genesis all these years and you've seen the Spirit of God at work, and you've seen the, uh, the omnipotence of the Word of God to do God's work. By the way, this Jesus of Nazareth that we're about to tell you about, He's all wrapped up in that. Matter of fact, He is the Word, the omnipotent Word, the agent that's both sent and distinct from the one sending, yet at the same time overlapping an identity so that to talk about the one necessitates talking about the other. The Word of God is this uh, Jesus of Nazareth. That, that's scandalous. I mean, and that's the scandal of the Gospel. And John 1 gets it, right? Now, how do we know who the Father is? How do we know who God is? Well, here's the good news. God's not left us to our own devices to figure out who God is. God has spoken. And He's spoken His Word, His Logos. And where has He done this? In the person and work of His Son. So when we think about Word of God, in Genesis 1, John 1.1, 1, 1, when we start talking about the Word was made flesh, for, for me, and now of course I know this is what I do for a living, but for me, that begins to just pulsate with Old Testament language. Now some New Testament people will tend to infuse that with Greco-Roman notions of logos or rationality or some, something borrowed from that particular philosophical world. 
and I, I just don't think that's what John's doing. I think what John is making a claim here about, even if he's borrowing that language from the Greco-Roman world, he's doing what we might call an interpretive jujitsu move on it. I'll take that word. I'm going to flip it over on its back. I'm going to infuse it with Old Testament thought. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, but the New Testament authors are brilliant at this. So whatever logos might have been under, or a word might have been understanding the Greco-Roman world of the first century, John, and I would say Paul too, they're both saying, I'm going to take that word from the culture, but I'm going to infuse that word with substance from the Bible, from the, from the, from the scriptures of Israel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He communicates to us the life of God. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, which I believe Doug Webster referred to in his sermon this morning, makes a claim about the person of Jesus being the exact image and representation of God himself. Right, And then what does he go on to say? And he was the means by which the world was created, and he's also the means by which the creation itself is preserved even now. What a claim to make about this Jesus of Nazareth who kicked up dust in a first century world and you know, fixed tables and, and um, you know, went to parties and drank wine and had a good time with his brothers and sisters. I mean, who knows what he, all he did, but this is that person who walked around is the very self-same agent um, who keeps the Indian Ocean from swallowing India who keeps uh, the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean from swallowing Florida up right now, who by tomorrow morning is going to allow, from our observational standpoint, the sun uh, to come up again and for it to go down again. And the coolness of the air that tells us about the movements of the seasons, the author to the Hebrews is telling us, hey, by the way, that's Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, Who's, who's making all of that happen again and again and again? He's preserving that at its basic level. I mean, so you, I mean, well, I'll talk more about that. Okay, now let me stop for a second because I want to move to Exodus three. But before we move on with the creation stuff, I'll move away from that. Any questions you want to ask about this? Anything? Anything you want to sort of plow into? Anything that you're maybe a little bit angry about? Yep. <laughs> I mean, these are the. I mean, I think these are these are, and, and, the, and the question that you raise right now is is a reason why theologians get to have jobs, right? Um, because they're they're wrestling with those kinds of questions. These are these are alive questions, um, and they and I think they relate particularly to the relationship of time and eternity. Um, and this is a thorny issue, right? I mean, what does it mean for God to be eternal? Does it mean that he's absence, absent of time himself? Does it mean that, that he's eternally present? That tends to be my kind of traditional view on God's timelessness, that is, he's an eternal present. If he is an eternal present, right? So I won't, I won't go deep into this, okay? but think about it. If he is an eternally present, we live in the continuum of forward-moving time on some sort of linear pattern. So we don't really know what it is to be in the present. That doesn't exist for you and for me. 
we live in the continuum of the past and the future. Now, I'm, I'm about to say the word dog, dog. Now it's past. I mean, we just, we don't have that. Um, and the classical tradition, the classic Christian tradition has identified God's eternality as an everlasting present. So even when you think about the questions about God's foreknowledge, you've heard these things before, like God, He knew in advance who would do this and that and made us. It, it, it just doesn't, that doesn't even make sense from the framework of God's um, eternal presence because nothing is future to Him. Everything is immediately present. And then that raises questions, right? I mean, I, can, I just hear a philosopher in the audience saying, but hold on, then what does it mean for God to be, really be in relationship to us if that dynamic is not really there of linear movement forward, if everything is immediately present? And the only, the best answer that I think we have to that is God determines Himself to be in that kind of relationship without doing any damage to His eternal being at the same time. You just have to sort of live with these tensions all over the place. Well, why do I say that? Well, part of that tension is, well, then what do we do with the incarnation? I mean, you, this is really important from a theological standpoint. God, the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, the agent that John 1, 1 talks about who's involved with what we're reading about here in Genesis chapter 1, that, that agent um, was not always a man. It was always God. It wasn't always a man. I mean, that's, that's, that's the logic of Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant. He became something that he was not. John chapter 1 verse 14, it's a very important verse. And the Word, again, Natal, right? And the Word became flesh. He took on something that he was not before without any diminution of the fullness of his divinity that he had before that particular moment. But how do you work that out if God's Identity from an eternality perspective is all is immediately present to him and nothing is developmental in that sense. These are the questions that the Christian tradition continue to wrestle with. And different theologians answer that in different ways. One of the theologians I like very much, though I, I disagree with him more now than I have before, is a fellow named Robert Jensen. He's still living. For Robert Jensen, God is not eternally eternal in the sense of outside of time. He's just not locked by um, the forward and past momentum of time, um, but that but he's still involved in time. He's put himself in time. Um, th these are very very complex questions. But the, but that relates to what you're saying about Harper, I think, um, because what does it mean to say that we don't get to see God because he's not embodied, he's formless, and yet at the same time make a claim about Jesus revealing what God actually is in formed uh, matter. Um, I, I don't have an easy answer for that. Ed, do you want to hop in? I'd like, like to comment yeah. on that. I, I believe that God is the creator and he's had eternity to figure out what what kind of person or what kind of he, he wants to create. He created humans in the perfect image of the people he wanted to have. And they, he calls us his chosen people he allowed his son to be us. You know, so I think God, though he may be formless, chose our being as his perfect form. Yeah. I mean, he I, made us. He made us. And this is, you know, this gets into the sort of made in the image of God language in yeah. Genesis chapter 1, which, and again, this is one of those things that God and I will talk about this someday, hopefully. <laughs> because it's a funny thing about how important image of God language has been used in the Christian tradition 
And yet the Bible really doesn't make anything of it outside of Genesis chapter 1. Why not? You know, why, 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 press into that for me a little bit more because of these kinds of questions that I have. What does it mean that humanity is the image of God? This, it does say something about, I think, the fact that, um, and again, this is, I'm, I'm appealing to my own tradition here, that what happens with Jesus of Nazareth in a manger, right, is not an afterthought to the eternal identity of God. I think that's a, that's a crucial claim to make, at least for me. And within the Reformation tradition, this is the way in which they have talked about that. The Logos, the second person of the Trinity, is either, here's some fancy language, incarnandus, on the way to being incarnate, or incarnatus, actually incarnate. But the second person of the Trinity is never abstracted or detached from what happens in the moment of the incarnation. That is not an afterthought to the being of God. It's integral to his eternal identity, something that he's determined within his own eternal identity to be. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at. Um, Ed. These are very complicated issues, I think. And Christian theologians wrestle with them to this day. And I would say it sounds really obtuse. It's, it's not an unimportant um, kind of wrestling to do. I think these, these things matter. Yeah. Jane. Different yeah, please. Yeah. Um, of course, I think that it is Trinitarian language, but not necessarily on the, on grammatical grounds. Um, I mean, for example, the you'll, you, it won't take you long to read a commentary on Genesis that's written, say, a hundred or so years ago, and you'll see Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Well, Elohim, you know, is the is the is the name for God. It's got an em ending in Hebrew. That's a masculine plural ending. So even in the name of God Himself, you have this sort of plural that's embedded within within the name itself from a Hebrew perspective. I don't think I, I wouldn't make that as, as a grammatical argument. I'd make it as a theological or metaphysical argument, but I wouldn't make it as a the, as a grammatical argument because the, the Hebrew language often uses plural language to talk about something that's elevated. Even the king can sometimes be referred to as something in the plural. And it doesn't mean that he's a divided sort of persona, but it just means that he's elevated and we're not going to use the singular, we're going to use the plural. So whether or not that's what's going on and let us make image, you know, that it's an elevated use of the language, that's very possible and and probable. But I don't need the grammar. See, this is the point. I don't need the grammar itself to be able to make a theological claim about the identity of God in the Old Testament in that act of naming. And in that act of, you know, let us make man in our, our image. Um, and with that said, you know, this gets back to the question, the, the disputation we were having before. Um, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? <laughs> we, we were taught at RTS, you know, we got this sort of notion about the ancient Near Eastern world and the image of God were small little forms, you know, that, that gives humanity dignity all throughout the world. And um, I don't know. I mean, Karl Barth and Bonhoeffer, they think, let us make man in our image. And what's the next line? Male and female created he them. In other words, the, 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 the male-female reality of, of relationship with other. That is, I don't have, an, I don't have a singular identity apart from an, an encounter with something other than myself. I'm not constituted individually in that way. I'm constituted in community with the other. Um, that will Karl Barton Bonhoeffer would say that's what the image of God means. I, but the, the the hard thing about this is the Bible just does not clean that up for us. It just doesn't do it. Um, and I, I kind of wish it did, you know. But any other questions? Don? Yeah, I'm I'm easy on these things, you know. Uh, uh, with the image of God. 
some of the elements of that are unique to man, is capacity for love, the capacity for joy outside of your circumstances, uh, and even the, the concept of living into eternity. Yeah, and you know, the, and the classical tradition would say that that being made in the image of God means that we have a rational capacity that the that the animal kingdom does not. That's that's unique to all, to the to the to the genus of being humanity. Um, and and I would just want to say maybe to all of that, you know, I, I, the the hard part of it is the Bible just doesn't clarify that for us. It doesn't connect those dots. Um, theologians have had to do that through, you know, for like for Aquinas, it's an appeal to Aristotelian forms of thinking. That's okay. I mean, I don't think Aquinas was necessarily wrong for doing that, but we just need to lay our cards on the table and know what the limits of our knowledge are on certain parts of the Bible that we really wish it would say more, but it just doesn't do that. And and we have to sort of, I think, sometimes step back and say these are our best options, but we're not sure about that, and and be okay with that. See, I I don't know about you. I grew up in a tradition. Where that I couldn't say that kind you know we couldn't be okay with we don't know we, we don't we don't know the answer to a b or c um, it could be a it could be b it could be c might be z that we never even thought of before but we just don't we're not sure about that yet um, there was a sense in which in, in my world growing up I'm throwing everybody oh my upbringing under the bus but um, <laughs> my world growing up you know all truth was kind of on an even plane. You know, there was no gradation of these things, a sort of ordering of them. And I think there is an ordering of certain things. Does the image of God theology matter for how we think about anthropology and what it means to be a human? It most certainly does. And any work that engages that question will have to dive into that. But is that on the same level as Trinity? And I don't know. I mean, I think we have to be able to order these things. Yeah. What time is it? Okay, well, that was great. <laughs> All right. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for these friends and thank you for um, your word that is a continual source of joy for us and learning. Um, and Lord, let, let us be humble before the task because we're talking about you and, and you, we, we have no ability within the confines of our limited finite reasoning to figure you out in your totality. Uh, but you have stooped low to speak to us so that we know who you are clearly in your Son. Let us live in that and, and find joy in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.